So I'm excited. It's been a little while since I've been able to, to teach. As I thought through the last few weeks, the last four weeks actually, we've done something different every week. Um, we had a time where we went out on the Sunday and did the survey in the neighborhood. The next Sunday, Matt came and preached. Then we had Christmas service at Trent's house, and then we came here for the first for the first time last week. Nothing has been consistent. Uh, nothing has been the same. And so as I've been preparing and studying, we're going to begin in the book of James as we read that last week and we read that through as a body to really prepare ourselves. I've just been thinking about that we're going to sit down and we're going to feast on God's Word. And we get to consider God's Word and chew on God's Word and just kind of suck the taste out of it and let it apply in our lives. And so just as with a fine dining experience, I'm not that familiar with fine dining. I'm, I'm better with tacos or with, uh, with barbecue back home. There's a nice tablecloth. That has, the table has to be prepared beforehand. You've got like multiple plates for multiple courses. You've got all these forks and spoons that you have no idea what to do with. And you're kind of looking around at the person next to you, watching which fork they use so that you use the appropriate one. But the enjoyment of this meal, a lot is based on the preparation and how the table is set and how the food's been prepared. And you spend so much time beforehand then just so you can get into the meal and actually enjoy and taste the food and have that interaction with each other at the table. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to set the table uh, for the book of James. We're only going to do one verse. I shared that with a couple people as they were asking me, okay, what are the passages going to be? I'm like, oh, just James 1.1. 1, 1. And they would kind of chuckle and say, okay, really, so what are we going to, what are we going to talk about? Like James 1.1. 1, 1. Um, so what we're going to look at is the context in which this book was written and in which the audience heard it. Because we want to, as much as possible, understand the, the literary context, how this book fits uh, as part of the Bible. As we look at words, as we look at uh, verses, and we want to consider them within the paragraph and within the book. And how does that book fit within the New Testament? And how does the New Testament fit within the Bible as a whole? It should all go together. It should all uh, weave a one story. And so in addition to the literary context, we want to think about the historical, uh, cultural context. What was it like when James was writing this? Who was James? What was his background? What was going on in the church? What was the situation that these, uh, the, the audience that received this letter, where were they? What was going on in their lives? And so we're going to do that so we can better understand as we walk through and move beyond James 1.1. What is it that James is saying? So we can understand as accurately as possible what it meant then so we can understand that for us now and then make application in our lives. And as we go through the book of James, you'll realize it's not that we need to understand everything perfectly, but we need to have beliefs that lead to action, beliefs that lead to, dem to demonstrated faith. And I thought about it. I want to give you guys a story about context. And on Friday night, we had six kids in our house my four and then Emmanuel and Melanie's two and we were babysitting them they're gone this weekend we were taking care of the kids that night but if you had walked in my apartment and you didn't know us or you didn't know our situation the first thing like maybe normal with the four kids you'd walk in like wow they've got a lot of kids in this little place but as you looked at the six of them you would have tried to figure out so are all these kids theirs? And they've been busy, right? How, how do they have all these kids? And you might start to look at the ages and ask the kids their age and say, well, wait, wait, wait. 
some of these are the same age. Like, okay, they must be twins. Maybe they were twins. Well, no, they're not twins. Okay, they're not twins. Then how are they the same age? Okay, maybe they were. Maybe this is their second marriage. Maybe this is a mixed family. Maybe that explains all these kids. But none of those are true. But as you understand the context, as you understand the situation, you get more information around us having six kids in our living room running around crazy. Then you can understand, oh, these four are theirs. They're babysitting for someone else. It makes sense of the situation. And if we don't understand that background, if we don't understand that context, we can make a lot of errors in our interpretation. We can misunderstand the situation, or in this case, misunderstand what James was saying. So we're going to start with James 1. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So first of all, we need to find out who is the author. And James clearly identifies himself, right? He didn't have to st study very long this passage to figure that out. But as we look at it, there are a few different Jameses. He doesn't go, as we see later, he doesn't say much else about himself. And so which James is this? As we see in Scripture in Matthew 10, or Matthew 4, sorry, we see that there's a few different Jameses. There's James the son of Zebedee, which was one of the first disciples that was called, that Jesus called to follow him. In verse 21, it says, And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. But we know it's not this James, even though he's the most mentioned James in Scripture. His name appears more than any other. He actually died and was martyred in 44 AD. It's not mentioned anywhere else. It doesn't make sense that he could have written this book. Then there's also in Matthew 10, it talks about James, the son of Alphaeus. As it's listing the disciples, it says, verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And this was a disciple, an additional disciple named James, but yet this is the only time that he's mentioned. He's never mentioned again in Scripture. And so as we look, we consider James that wrote this book to be James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So look at Matthew 13, 55. It says, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not, this, is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? So as we walk through this, you'll see more clearly that this is the only author that makes sense. This is traditionally in the early church and who was identified, but yet as we look at all the details, this is the one that makes sense. And the one thing that we see from that verse is that James was the oldest brother of Jesus. In their tradition and in that, in that writing, they would have listed the oldest brother first. And so we can well assume that he was the oldest. So as we think about, as I think about my brother and what he would perceive of me, I don't know that I'd want him writing a book about me. And to think about that situation. So what was James' perspective on Jesus? I mean, he grew up with him. He lived his life with him. He watched him. I'm sure they fought. I'm sure they had the, you know, all those same and similar situations. But as we see uh, in John 7, verse 2 through 5, 
It says, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For, for not even his brothers believed in him. So James was with Jesus. James didn't believe that Jesus was who Jesus said he was. This was six months prior to Jesus' crucifixion. He had gone through two and a half plus years of ministry. James had grown up with him. James had heard of him. But yet, at this point, James still didn't believe Jesus who was who he was. So what changed his perspective? We can see in 1 Corinthians 15. You guys are still with me. This is like class today, right? right okay. I'll get to some illustrations and some, some fun things, but we want to understand this background. So what changed James's perspective? And he saw Christ. He saw specifically the resurrected Christ. And Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 15. 5 through 7. He says, And that he appeared to Cephas, which was Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So we know for sure that James did get this he met the resurrected Christ. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ after he had been crucified, after he had been buried, and after he had resurrected. And so James began to believe. And not only did he believe, but he also began to follow. As we look at Acts 1, verse 14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So in the early church, they were waiting for the Holy Spirit to come. They were gathered together, the disciples, with Mary, with the other women, and with, with the brothers. James would have been a part of that. This was after he had seen the resurrected Christ. But it's interesting as you think about this, before the Holy Spirit comes, they choose this uh, disciple to replace Judas. And there's two men that they decide from and they end up selecting Matthias. James wasn't even considered. He wasn't even considered at that point, at that early point in the church, to be an apostle or to be a disciple to take Judas's place. He had just seen the resurrected Christ. He had just begun to follow him. And yet he begins to transition now. We see later that he becomes a leader in this, this Jerusalem church. So this church that starts in Acts, that's made of Jews, that become Christians, that, that trust Christ in faith, over time James becomes the leader, becomes the head of this church. And we're going to read through Galatians, uh, chapter 1, verse 18 through 19. So this is Paul speaking. And this is three years after Paul met Christ on the Damascus Road, after Paul had this experience as well with the resurrected Christ. And Paul decides to go back to Jerusalem. 
He says, Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none other of the, of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And now moving forward to Galatians 2, this is 14 years later. Paul's received this revelation of the gospel and this gospel to go to the Gentiles. He wants to make sure he's on the same page with the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. I want to make sure we have the same gospel. We're not working in vain against each other. In verse 1, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. And moving to verse 6. It says, And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And verse 9, And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So here is 15 to 20 years later of Paul being saved, of after James had this experience with the resurrected Christ, Paul goes back to the church in Jerusalem to make sure, I've got the right gospel, I'm preaching this gospel to the Gentiles, let's make sure we're on the same page, this is the same Christ, that we're not contradicting each other. And he goes to John and to James and to Peter. These were the, the pillars of the church, the elders of the church, in a sense, the leaders of the church. And so we see how James's life has transformed as we see this through Scripture from being Jesus' brother, not believing him, not believing who he was, to seeing the resurrected Christ, to being with the early church, and now to being a leader in the early church. So how does James describe himself? He doesn't give much. A servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He gave only his spiritual qualifications. If I was James, I'd be like, hey, I am Jesus' brother. I am the leader of the church in Jerusalem. This is the original church. This is the church in Acts, you know, which we all want to be like. This is, that's who I am. But he says, I am a servant of Christ. I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is his reality. This is what's important to him. He doesn't spend any time on anything else. And as we understand this word servant, it's been uh, made much more palpable for us. When you look at it literally, it just means slave. And yet in our translations, because of our culture and because of the way our language is and the history, even recent history, we don't tend to use the word slave because of the connotations that go with that. 
that we only think of involuntary enslavement. But this was something that James chose. And despite all of his other qualifications, this is how he identified himself. He says, I am a slave. He was in a position of permanent servitude. He was fully submitted to this Jesus that was his half-brother, this Jesus that he had seen resurrected. I know from myself when we were um, started trying to put the website together and I had to put my contact information. I know I put my phone number, here's the email. And then I thought, well, what else do I need to put? And honestly, my mind goes, well, I need to put what are my qualifications? Where, have I studied? How do I manage my household? Am I a father? What ministry have I done in the past? Maybe I should put a nice paragraph and a summary. And so, so you guys can see that. So those that come to our website could see that. I never thought about putting Brit, a slave of Jesus Christ. But that's what Paul, I mean, that's what James did. And so I want us to ask ourselves, is that how you would introduce yourself? If you had to stop and think, who am I? Would you say, I'm a slave? I'm a slave of Christ. I'm fully sold out. I'm committed to him. I'm submitted to him. He owns me. And we'd like to say, well, I'm a believer. I believe in Jesus. And some of us, if we're kind of edgy, we'll say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ. That's how I introduce I'm a follower of Christ. I follow him. But I have not heard anybody say, I'm a servant. I'm a slave of Christ. And so for us just to think through that, what is your perspective? Where are you? Where does your mind go? Because that's not what I've been taught. That's not what I initially think. But yet that's what James demonstrates. So he was a slave of who? He was a slave of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we tend to, to run through these verses, right? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, I've heard that so many times. That really, I know what that means. I'm going to go on forward to the next because there's got to be some really good stuff I'm going to get to. But this is only one of two times that James actually mentions the name Jesus in this book. And so he says, I'm a slave of this Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so let's just for a second, I want to go through those names. And we understand the meaning behind that as James would have intended, as his audience would have received it. That Jesus was, was God's human name, his earthly name. That it literally meant Joshua. It meant salvation. They would have all known that. They would have all understood that. And then when you think about Christ, it would have related back to that he was the Messiah. That he was the fulfillment of this Old Testament promise. He was the Savior that was going to come and that was going to redeem. So he was this God in human form that came to save us. He was going to fulfill all the Old Testament, the Christ. And then he was Lord. That he was full deity and that I would submit completely to him. That he has full control over my life. So it's almost like James is repeating himself. I'm a slave and this is how I relate to my master. This is who he is. He came to save me. He came to redeem me. And I owe everything to him. I'm fully under his direction, under his leadership. I'm not my own. So if we're going to serve Jesus, if we're going to be here in this neighborhood, 
in this place. It needs to not be for our pleasure, not for me to feel better, not for me to feel good that I did something with my hands that I can come in here and look at, even relationships we make, that it's to serve Christ and that that's what he deserves and that that's his place and that's my place. So as we consider James further, his personality is very direct. He definitely had authority in his position. He was forcible in his language. And I think this idea of him being so straightforward, he knew this audience. They, he, at one point, had been their leader, had been their pastor, had walked with them, had taught them. They've been sent off, and yet he's relating to them. They have a relationship. He doesn't see any need to kind of go around, beat around the bush. He goes straight to the issue, straight to the point. As you look at the book of James, there's 108 verses. And 54 of those verses are imperatives, are commands, are telling them what to do. He was also a student of uh, nature. As you see, as we'll go through the book, he makes lot, he, lots of metaphors in regards to nature and trying to understand what he's asking these believers to do. Some of the scholars will say that he used more references to nature in one book and five chapters than Paul did in all of his writings. And so as we think about that, where he was in Jerusalem, what he was looking at, what he understood growing up there in the family, in this poor family that he did. So that gives us perspective. So moving on to the date of when this was written. This was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, before 70 A.D. We know that it was also written before 62 A.D. because that's when James was martyred. So he had to write it before he died, right? I'm, I'm making some, uh, some jumps there, but... All right. Um, and that this also we, is before this, uh, the Jerusalem Council. And if you guys remember, as we went through Galatians, the Jerusalem Council was when they brought together, there were all these issues as the church went out, as the, as the gospel went to the Gentiles. They started having, okay, do these Gentiles need to become Jewish Christians? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the law? What we've talked about as we went through Galatians, this was before this. this that had not occurred yet. This is from the early church. James is over that, and he's speaking to Jewish Christians. These are not Gentile Christians. Um, this was probably the first book that was written in the New Testament. So as James wrote this, he wasn't referencing the Gospels. He wasn't going back to look at the accounts of Jesus from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is from James' experience, from what he understood, from what he had learned, from watching Christ, from seeing the resurrected Christ, from being a leader in the church. So as we think through this, this truly, I know we talk about a lot, oh, I want to be, I want the church to be like it was in Acts. I want to be like the early church. Well, this is James writing us from the early church, speaking to the early church. So it's important for us now. So the audience, as we look, it's to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And so that term, the 12 tribes, just literally means a, a completion of Jews, Israel as a whole. So again, this was a Jewish audience, a Jewish audience that were believers and followers in Christ. And the dispersion literally means that they had been scattered, that they had left Jerusalem, that they had been scattered, particularly in the Gentile world, that they were amongst people that they were not used to being with, 
working with, interacting with, and yet this is where they found themselves, that they were strangers in a place that was not their home. But what's interesting is that it was a result of persecution. It wasn't because of a famine. It wasn't because of other things that God tend, that puts in place sometimes that moves his people. It was because of persecution. So as we look at the next passage in Acts, verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 2, you can see this is the persecution that occurred as a result of Paul, who at that time was named Saul. In verse 1 it says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, any men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Even after Paul uh, met the Lord, there was still persecution. From others in Acts 11, we see this is what people will point to as a specific crowd, the specific audience that James is writing to is the crowd that as a result of this verse in chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So this is who James is writing to. Those that were persecuted because of their faith. Those that were there in the early church. So throughout this letter, he assumes a community of faith. These are believers. These are those that have professed and have lived out and have been persecuted because of their faith. These are not people that he's trying to teach or preach the gospel to. He's not going into depth about Jesus Christ and what he, who he is for them. He is assuming that. They profess that in a sense. They believe in Jesus Christ. And they have a strong faith. As we look from James on word, it's words in uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Of his own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And then 2.1, as he's writing to them, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So let's move on to theme. All right? Everybody still with me? Everybody's good? You guys haven't been in class for a while? Right. Um, the theme. So beyond verse 1, what are we going to get to? That's verse 1. I'm done with verse 1. But what are we going to? What's coming? The theme is faith. Some people will say, oh, it's works. It's about those imperatives. It's about those things you have to do. But the theme very clearly throughout the entire book of James is faith. It's not, I've read some different things as different um, authors will say, well, it's this, uh, this, this string of pearls that James just slowly drops all these nice things that we should do, this command that he slowly drops for us one by one. They'll refer to it sometimes and say, oh, it's like wisdom literature. It was like the Proverbs. And so it was all these good things that these are things that in general are good things to do. I've also read that it's disconnected. It's without a theme. 
And I would tell you that none of those things are true. James didn't have any reason to give them more wisdom literature. They had Proverbs. They were Jews. They knew the Old Testament. They knew how to live. It's not disconnected. It's just that we're looking into a conversation that we didn't know exactly what was going on before. We weren't there when he was their pastor, when he was walking with them. He knew them. He knew what they believed. Now he wanted to see that belief lived out. So, as I read through and just considered things, like, why is this a perspective? Why is it that people think this is sometimes that this is wisdom literature? This is just a bunch of commands and things to do. And mostly it's because I said it's because of omissions. It's because of things that aren't there. I told you that Jesus is only mentioned twice. It never talks of his. Uh, it never talks of his incarnation. It never talks of his suffering. It doesn't talk of his death. It doesn't talk of his resurrection. From a Jewish perspective, it doesn't talk about circumcision. It doesn't talk about the Sabbath. It doesn't talk about their interaction with Gentiles. All these things that Paul, as he wrote to the Gentiles, talked about. But for James talking to this body, he doesn't go there. But as I said, this is not a letter of doctrinal understanding. James was not concerned that they believed the right things. He was concerned that those beliefs led to the right actions. He wasn't debating anything theologically. They had not encountered this question of do the Gentiles have to be circumcised. We just read that they went only sharing with Jews. That they thought that this, this faith in Jesus Christ was a consummation of the Jewish faith. That that was it. It wasn't necessarily going to go out to the Gentile world. So plain and simple, it's about faith. It's about the faith and life of individuals and that community as a whole. About what results when they've been impacted, when they've been changed, when they've been transformed by Jesus Christ, by His life, by His death, by His resurrection, by what He's done for them. It's, it should demonstrate a life where Jesus is Savior, where He's Redeemer, and where He's Lord, where He's our Master, where, we're here, where we are His slave, just as James said. So James doesn't have a concern with orthodoxy, right belief. He has a concern with orthopraxy, right practice. And that's what he focuses on. And I've gone through this in my mind in the conversations that I have with myself. And I'm like, well, if we get the right practice, does that mean we have right beliefs? And can you have right beliefs and wrong practice? And are they always connected? What, are, what about the people that are helping and doing right things, but yet they believe something completely different? And what about the people that believe all the right things, but their life doesn't demonstrate it? And so I think this is what James, as you look at the book as a whole, this is what he's getting to. He's saying they shouldn't be different. A right belief should lead to a right practice. And so as he talks about faith, he's talking about our core beliefs. And our core beliefs are the things that we believe without thinking about what we believe. When we're put in a situation where we're tested, where we're persecuted, where there's an emergency, how do we respond? What do we do? Where does our mind initially go? It's the things that we believe and, and demonstrate unquestioned obedience in. And as I've shared with you guys, one of my heroes is Martin Luther King Jr. 
and he believed in nonviolence, that that was a way to make social change in his time. And so in 1972, September, they had their first integrated conference of this Southern Leadership, uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference, and it was the first integrated conference in Birmingham. And Martin Luther King steps up to the podium, he begins to speak, and out of the audience, a white man runs to the stage and begins just to pound him in the face, just begins to pummel him and beat him. And the audience of the witnesses that were there said they, it was like silence and all they could hear was the popping of his, the guy's fist against his face. And after a moment of reaction, his, the leadership came up, they pulled the man away. And later, the Martin Luther King, he didn't press charges. They sat with him, they prayed for this man who was, a, was a, a part of the Nazi party, was a white supremacist. They shared the gospel with him. And what they say was most impressive was that as this man came and he started to hit him and started to pound him and Martin Luther went down and started to bring himself back up, he stood up in front of the man and drops his arms like a baby, like an infant, and just stands there before him. This man came out of the blue, started beating him in the face, knocks him to the ground, he stands up and drops his arms. It wasn't planned. It wasn't something that he was prepared for. It was, what does he really believe? Does he truly believe that nonviolence, that responding to them in this way is, is right? And by doing that in that moment, he didn't think, he didn't have a time to write it out, he just responded. And so it was a core belief of his. And he demonstrated that in the way he responded. And so in the same way, James is saying, what are your core beliefs? What do you truly believe? And I should see that in how you respond through all this adversity, through these trials, through, the, through daily life. You should respond in this way. Your faith, your core belief should come, come to the surface. So as I now bring it down to church world and what I grew up in, it's the difference between profession. I can have a profession of faith. This is what I believe. I speak it with my mouth. And James would not have considered that faith. He would have considered faith what we truly believe and therefore how we act. All of that together is our faith. It's not what we profess with our mouth. It's what we profess and we respond that matches up. And I hear the phrase a lot, and I've even seen them on bumper stickers, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven. And I see that and I have to think for myself, like, is that just a cop-out? People say, like, you see that on my bumper sticker? Now, when I cut you off here in traffic, I'm not perfect. I still mess up. You know, I'm just forgiven. And that's true. It's true that we're not perfect. We're forgiven. But yet, God is calling us now to live out this faith, right? To live out what we believe that it might be demonstrated as well. And we can't just say, this is what I believe. I've got my insurance and my fire insurance. I'm saved. And I can live this life how I want now. So it's not enough just to be a Christian if it doesn't manifest itself in our conduct and in our life. And as we start to end, this is something that the Lord has repeatedly brought to my heart this week, that the reason for our faith is not today. The reason for our faith is what's to come. The reason for our faith is this promise that He's made us. It's this hope that we have. It's that Christ will return. It's that Christ will redeem us. He'll restore us. He'll make all things new. That in the end, 
His name will not be shamed. He'll take care of his, of his name. That's what I'm trusting. That's what I believe. And so therefore I act a certain way now. It's not, I have faith that if I do this today, tomorrow, this week, God's going to reward me. James would have never considered that. His audience that's being persecuted, that's scattered, that's not at home, they would have not have thought that. And so let me just read these two verses. Uh, James 1.12 He said, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. And then James 5, verse 7 through 9. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the late rains. You also, be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. They were acting as if it was going to happen any moment. They believed it would be soon. They weren't living for today. They weren't living for the next moment, the next week. They were living for when Christ came. And that was what their faith was based on. And so the purpose we'll see for this letter with the central theme of faith is that their faith would be tested. This is not a letter about works. It's a letter about faith. So let me just read uh, to show you guys what's coming. We're going to read chapter 1, verse 2 through 12. Starting in verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So look again at verse 12. Because I think this is the summary that James starts with. And then he moves to different tests of our faith. But verse 12 it says, Under trial, and when we have stood the test. 
These words are very similar in the Greek. And anytime they're used, they have this understanding of probation. Of a probationary period. When you look at probation, the understanding of that is that when an individual would go through a period of testing or a trial to ascertain their fitness, particularly um, for a job or for school. So I've got to be able to demostrate that I actually can do what I claim. That I'd have this period of probation to see what's actually true in me, to see what's actually in me. Is my faith real? When you look at test, it's a critical examination or an evaluation. Specifically, the procedure of submitting a statement to such conditions or operations as will lead to its proof or disproof. So when James says trials, when he says tests, he's not talking, his, his focus is not, these terrible things are going to happen to you. He's like, as you go through life, these things that you're experiencing, they're going to show disproof or prove this faith that you say that you have, that you profess that you have. And this is the opportunity that was before this body, this, this dispersed Jews that were Christians. And this is the opportunity for us. We've talked a lot over the last four or five months. This has happened faster than I ever expected, that we would have a place from which we can do ministry, a place from which we can serve this neighborhood, which we can love our neighbor. And God says, here you are. I've given you everything you need. I've given you everything you've asked for and more, and I've given it much faster than you ever expected. So what are we going to do with it? How are we going to respond? What do we really believe? And what is our faith in? James wants us to have a living faith, an active faith. A faith that's not about what we believe, but how our life looks, how our life is lived. If we're to be, I've thought about, we're to be living stones. We're to be built up as a spiritual house in this neighborhood to demonstrate Christ, to proclaim Christ. Then we have to have living faith. Our faith has to be active. And so as we go through trials, as we go through tests, I pray that, that our faith will be proved, that our faith is in Jesus Christ and is in what He's done for our lives and that we're looking forward to what He's going to do, what He promises to do. And as Ernesto has said repeatedly, now what are we here for in between? We're here to proclaim, we're here to demonstrate that our faith would be tested, it would be real, it would be authentic, it would be living. 